Well, hello and welcome to Ridge Church Online. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here at Ridge Church, and I'm so glad that you're joining us. Wherever you're listening in from or tuning in from, if you're watching on YouTube, if you're uh, from Maple Ridge but away on vacation and tuning in, if you are just checking out our church for the very first time, uh, I want to welcome you. We're glad that you're here to listen. Um, if you've been around for any amount of time, you know that we are in what's been kind of a carrying on series through our church that we've called Come and See, the Gospel of John. And through the Gospel of John, what we've seen is story after story after story of Jesus interacting with different people, of Jesus spending time together, often with one or two people, with small groups of people, engaging who they really are, getting to know their stories, getting to know what their life is all about. We see all sorts of responses to Jesus, right? In the beginning chapters, we see his cousin, John the Baptist, and how his ministry was thriving. But when he saw Jesus, he was excited to see Jesus. And he called him the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He worshiped him. He celebrated him. His response to seeing and meeting and engaging with Jesus was to worship. We see Jesus in John chapter 3 engage a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus's response to Jesus and his work and his miracles and his teaching was to, to ask some questions, to try and understand, to figure out what it was that Jesus was doing, who it was that Jesus was. We see Jesus interact with a woman at a well, isolated from the rest of her community. And we see that for her, she has some questions too, but it's not just an intellectual discussion. It's actually something that changes her life forever. All sorts of people in the gospel of John have all sorts of initial reactions to who Jesus is. Some are amazed, some are confused. Some are downright hostile, while still others leave everything to follow him as a disciple. I remember the first time I really truly heard about who Jesus was, was at a Bible camp. And many of you might have a similar story. The first place you met or the first place you really experienced Jesus was at a Bible camp. One of the beautiful things about Bible camp, I just spent the last week speaking at one here in town, Timberline Ranch. And um, the amazing thing about that is you can hear and see worship happening of Jesus as King. Someone coming up and sharing about who Jesus is. Bible studies happening, talking about the nature of, of who Jesus is and why that matters and what the gospel is. All these things. And with hundreds of kids from different backgrounds, from some who've grown up in the church, some who have no context for who God is, some who have a little bit of context here and there, all sorts of backgrounds. And what's amazing and beautiful about camp is you get to see, just like the gospel of John, all sorts of responses to who God is. I remember when I first went to camp, I was invited by a friend and he wasn't a Christian friend. He, in fact, I remember invited me and very specifically told me, yeah, it's a Christian camp. They make you listen to some guy talk for a little bit. They make you listen to some weird music and do actions and all those things. But, but the beach is really awesome. There's tons of awesome games and you should come hang out with me this summer. And I remember being so excited to go, but not so sure about the whole God thing and then getting there and experiencing Jesus in a way that transformed my life. But, but over the years, I've got to speak at camps, work at camps, all those kind of things. And what you see is that everyone who engages and meets and experiences Jesus, they may have that same experience, but their response is very different. But one thing is the same across the board. 
No matter who you are, no matter what you've been through, no matter what your story might be, you cannot meet Jesus and walk away unchanged. You cannot meet Jesus and remain indifferent to who he really is. You might be able to remain indifferent if all you do is have some intellectual conversation, is debate or read a book or whatever that may be, but to truly experience who Jesus is, to truly meet him will leave you changed. And it might lead you further away from Jesus because you're resisting what the Holy Spirit's trying to do in your life, or it might lead you closer as your heart softens to the message of the gospel. For better or for worse, an encounter with Jesus will change you. It will challenge you. It will send your assumptions about the world into a crisis tailspin and force you to start asking the big question, the ones that really matter. That's because Jesus is not like any other historical figure. Recently, I saw the film Oppenheimer, which is all in the news right now. It's this Christopher Nolan epic. It's, it's got these amazing reviews and it's, it's all about this man who developed the atom bomb. And, and one of the interesting lines in the movie is someone says to him, you are actually the most important person in history. Like that you might be the most important, that the work that you are doing is so influential, it's so important, it's so world-changing that you might be one of the most important people who has ever lived. And I remember watching the movie and it was amazing and it was awesome and it was all these things. And I remember going home from the movie and going, I want to know more, I want to understand more. And I went down the Wikipedia wormhole and I went down the YouTube wormhole and I learned all this stuff and I got all this context and I learned all this history. And sure, he's important and he's this figure in history and we, we, we see a movie about him and it'll probably win Oscars and all those things, but here's the difference. At the end of the day, it doesn't change anything about my life. It doesn't force me to ask about the nature of life and death and what it means to be a human. At the end of the day, I finished watching the movie. I walked out to the lobby and I was like, maybe I should see Barbie. That seems like a good movie too. See, see, the reality is Jesus is the only human figure, the only historical figure that actually provokes us to something beyond interest. And other figures, Oppenheimer or anyone else, they might interest you. They might provoke some questions. They might even challenge your thoughts on this or that. But Jesus stands alone in stark contrast, in stark difference to the other figures of history, giant figures of history. He stands alone in this way that he forces us to ask the question, who is he? Who is Jesus really? C.S. Lewis famously wrote this. What I am trying here to prevent anyone saying is the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing that you must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said is not a great moral teacher. He's either a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something even worse. You may shut him up as a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us and he did not intend to. 
See, what we find in the gospel of John is that the reality of Jesus's life and ministry and the things that he himself says force us to this question. And where we find ourselves in the text today is in John chapter seven, if you have a Bible and want to go there. And Jesus has just wrapped up a dialogue and debate with some members of the Jewish religious center. He's in the temple. He's talking to them. He's openly teaching about who he is and how God has sent him on a mission. He knows the danger. He knows the risk. He knows how this is going to offend people, but he's not concerned. He courageously is stepping in to say the things that God has called him to say. And he's even willing to call out the entire community, not only for their selfishness and misguided attempt to connect and experience God's love through works of the law, but he strikes them at the heart by saying that even if this was the proper way to do it, they do not live up to their own expectations. And so we find ourselves in John 7 in verse 25. And the people around have heard all these things Jesus has said. They've heard him talk. They've heard him call the whole community out. And here's what happens in verse 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man that they're trying to kill? Like, isn't this the one the religious leaders are trying to get killed? Yet here he is. He's speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities concluded that he is the Messiah? As if to say, maybe we're missing out on something. If he is so dangerous, if he is such a liar, if he is a lunatic, why hasn't anyone shut him up yet? Maybe he is the Messiah, but then the, the tension resolves the other direction. But wait, no, we, we, we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. There seems to be a realization in the crowd. If this Jesus is really a demon-possessed lunatic, the religious leaders are aware of this. What's he doing up there? Why hasn't anyone shut this guy up? What is he doing standing up at the temple, spouting off his ideas, his craziness, without anyone putting a stop to it? Does someone know something that I don't? Is what he's saying actually true? Is he the Messiah? And the crowd hits this potential conclusion. But the problem is, ah, hold on. We know this guy. We know this guy. See, Jewish and Israel's thought at the time and understanding from scripture is that the the Messiah would appear suddenly, that that he would not be some guy from a town up north. Malachi 3.1 says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord that you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. See, there seems to be this idea, even in the Hebrew scriptures that we read as the Old Testament, that the Messiah would appear suddenly. And so what the Jewish people are waiting for is someone to show up who they weren't expecting. And Jesus, yeah, he's doing miracles. He's saying cool stuff, but, but we know this guy. He's the carpenter kid. He's from up north. You know, the one whose family lineage is a little bit sketchy. The, the guy who is some lower class, maybe middle class carpenter's son. He can't be the Messiah. There's, there's no way. And, and upon hearing this, Jesus responds. And we don't know, and we can't read in exactly his tone, but, but it reads almost as if his words are dripping with the irony of the situation. Oh, you think you know me. Oh, you know a little bit about me. You, you, you know where I'm from. You know the family I'm from. You, you think you know all that there is to know about me. Well, verse 28, Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out to them, yes, you know me. 
And yes, you know where I'm from, but I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And repeating the verses that Jonathan spoke on last week in verses 16 to 18 of John chapter seven, Jesus points us to the God who has sent him as the primary source of his identity. So as to say, oh, you think you know me? No, 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 no. Because if you knew me, you would know the one who sent me and you don't know God. You are missing what God actually has for you. Who I am, who I am identified as Jesus of Nazareth is not my family of origin. It's not the place I live. It's not the work that I did for the first 30 years of my life. It's not even the work I'm doing right now in ministry. It's not the gifts. It's not the miracles he's doing. It's not the wisdom and the teaching. What Jesus seems to say his identity is, is the one who's been sent by the father. And repeating these ideas, what he seems to be saying is you think you know me based on this evidence, but you are missing the core of who I really am. There's a beautiful scene in a film called Goodwill Hunting that many of you will have watched. And if you haven't, I can't recommend it enough. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. And in it, there's this young kid from Boston played by Matt Damon and, and he's a genius. He's a genius, but he comes from a rough neighborhood and, and they discover, uh, a group discovers that he's a genius. And what they want to do is, is sort out his kind of sordid past and his issues and his anger issues. And he's in trouble because he's always getting into fights and all these things. And so they send him to this therapist played by Robin Williams. And in the first scene that they interact in this therapy office, what Matt Damon, this genius kid does, is he sees this painting of a man in a boat and he asks him, oh, did you make this? And, and he proceeds to take this, this therapist played by Robin Williams art and he picks it apart. And he talks about how, oh, this must mean that you married the wrong woman. And he gets a glimpse of, of hearing the therapist get a little bit angry and he says, watch your mouth. And, and he goes even further. He goes, oh, you painted this picture because you were so ashamed and you were stuck in this storm and it must've been this and it must've been this and it must've been this. And, and the scene ends with this intensity of the therapist actually shoving him up against the wall and telling him to get out. But the most beautiful scene of the film happens a few moments later when they meet in a park. And what this kid is expecting is to be reamed out, is to be told how awful he is. But, but what he's met with is the therapist who comes and talks to him and says this. You know, if I asked you about art, you'd probably give me the skinny on every art book ever written. Michelangelo, you know a lot about him, life's work, political aspirations, him and the Pope, the whole works, right? But I bet you can't tell me what it smells like in the Sistine Chapel. You've never stood there. You've never looked up at that ceiling, seen that. If I asked you about war, you'd probably throw Shakespeare at me, right? Once more into the breach, my dear friends, but you've never been near one. You've never held your best friend's head in your lap to watch him gasp his last breath, looking to you for help. If I asked you about love, you could quote me a sonnet, but you've never looked at someone and been totally vulnerable, known someone who can level you with their eyes to have that love for her be there forever through anything, through cancer. And you wouldn't know about sleeping, sitting up in the hospital room for two months, holding her hand because the doctors could see in your eyes that visiting hours don't apply to you. You don't know about real loss because that only occurs something when you love something more than yourself. I doubt you've ever dared to love anyone that much. I look at you, I don't see an intelligent, confident man. I see a cocky, scared kid. 
But you're a genius. No one denies that. No one could possibly understand the depths of you. But because you saw a painting of mine, you presumed to know everything about me. You saw one piece of my life and you tried to rip my life apart. But he looks at this kid and what he knows about him is that he's an orphan. He says, you're an orphan, right? Do you think I'd know the first thing about you, about how hard your life has been, about how you feel because I've read Oliver Twist? Does that encapsulate you? What is he saying? To truly know someone, we can't just know information about them. To truly deeply understand who someone is, what their story is, who they are at the core of their being, some information about where they're from or who their family is or what their job is, is not enough. And so the question for you today, my friends, is this. Do you know Jesus or do you know about Jesus? Because one will change your life because one will change everything about what it means for you to live and breathe and operate in the world. And one will become a reduced piece of information about you and what you check on a box when it asks what your religion is. Do you know an incredible amount of information about Jesus, the stories, the teachings, the morals, everything you're supposed to say? Or is the beauty of who Jesus is transformed you through every fiber of your being? Do you know all the right Christianese to say in order to demonstrate understanding and show people that you are a good Christian, some theological principles that you can spout off or have you felt the relief and the safety like a first breath coming up after being trapped underwater when the life of the spirit fills you and you know that you are loved because of Jesus? Are you interested in an arguing the minutia of who's in and who's out of the kingdom of God and who has the right theology and which people are doing it wrong and which church is better and which preacher is better and which sins are worse than others and who is doing the wrong thing and who is doing the right thing or has the kindness of God in the words of Paul drawn you into repentance and an ache in your heart longs for a desire for real change, for real change, not just behavior modification. My friends, Jesus loves you too much to let you stay that comfortable. He cares too deeply about the person who is you to let you carry on engaging your faith a mile wide, but an inch deep. He wants you to experience all that you've been created for. But in order to do that, he is challenging us to engage who he really is, to really know him, to really experience him. What's amazing about this passage is Jesus is not desperate for approval. He is not coming into this situation, nor is he speaking into your life, begging and pleading and hoping because he's not going to be okay unless you like him. He is confident in who he is and who God has sent him to be. And so he speaks what God has called him to, regardless of how it may offend people. Jesus is not concerned about whether or not his words offend you. But this kind of challenge can cause backlash. And we see the crowd with that very mixed response. Verse 30, this, they tried to seize him. He's comparing himself. He's making himself equal with God. And so they try to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Still, many in the crowd believed in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? As if to say, I, I, I don't know what else this guy needs to do to prove it. Like, it seems like this is the guy, but the Pharisee heard the crowd whispering such things and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. 
They realize that if people think Jesus is the Messiah, that they need to do whatever they need to do to put a stop to it. And as always, Jesus's life, ministry, and teaching is met with a mixed response. Some move immediately to have him killed, but God prevents this from happening. Others begin following this very genuine thought pattern. What other evidence do we need? Different people have different responses to Jesus and his message. What's interesting and actually really beautiful is that God used the friend who invited me to camp to be a big part of my story leading me to Christ. This friend who said, come to summer camp with me, to my knowledge and my understanding that uh, he does not follow Jesus. He's never given his life to Jesus. He's never decided to be a Christian and a follower of Christ. And yet God has used him to bring me to a camp where I met Jesus for the first time. God can bring about whatever he wants to bring about through whoever he wants to bring it about through, but different people will have different responses to the same message, the same gospel. As Charles Spurgeon puts it, the same sun which melts wax hardens clay. And the same gospel which melts some people to repentance hardens others' hearts to their sins. Oftentimes you may feel discouraged by the lack of response to those around you to Jesus. Maybe it's your family, maybe it's your friends, maybe it's your coworkers. That, that you feel like there's just not the response that you wish would happen that you want people around you to know Jesus, that, that you desire, like our church's vision is, that our city would know Jesus, that your family would know Jesus, that your friends would know Jesus, but, but they just don't. Like no matter how much you try to explain it or try to tell them about how much Jesus has changed your life or, or whatever it may be, there just, there just seems to be either a hostility or, or even worse than that, an apathy. I remember talking with one of our students and, and they were talking about trying to share their faith at school. And they said that the problem isn't that people are angry at my faith. The problem is that they just don't care. They're not against Jesus. They just have other things they care more about. Because apathy is a greater barrier than hostility. And in this moment, we live in a time and place where most people feel without hope. So over the last number of years, we've lived through a worldwide pandemic. We continue to feel the effects of that and will for years to come. Our economy and what's to come in that regard is being affected by it. We're seeing things like globalization, global warming, political idolatry and ideologies. The world feels like it's not quite right and it's undergoing a major shift. It's left people feeling tired and exhausted and unsure where to look for hope. Author Adam Grant wrote an article in 2021 in kind of the midst of the pandemic. And he wrote about this very feeling that so many of us, so many of the people around you have. He called it languishing. Here's what he writes. Languishing is the neglected middle child of our mental health. It's the void between depression and flourishing the absence of well-being. You don't have symptoms of mental illness. It's not as if everything's falling apart, but you're not the picture of mental health either. You're not functioning at the full capacity of who you are as a human. And the danger is that when you're languishing, you might not notice the dulling of delight or the dwindling of your drive. You don't catch yourself slipping slowly into solitude. You're just indifferent to the indifference. When you can't see and understand your own suffering, you don't seek help or even do much to help yourself. 
Does that describe anyone you know? Does that describe yourself? See, for so many people, we can sense that something's wrong. We can sense that we're not where we wish we were. And it may not feel like a crisis. It may not feel like everything's falling apart, but we're numb and we're wondering what it looks like to have hope, to get better, to, to live as we want to live. And we know something's wrong, but we don't know where to look to make it better. And so we just turn to distraction. We turn to social media, to online shopping, to living our lives through a TV screen to help us numb the pain that we don't quite know how to name. But what's beautiful about the challenge of the gospel, the challenge of Jesus to say, this is who I am, who do you say that I am? Is that it's not only challenge, it's invitation. That, that Jesus himself says things like, I did not come for the righteous, but for sinners. That it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick and I am the great physician. The invitation that Jesus has, come to me if you're weary, if you're tired, if you're burnt out and I will give you rest. The challenge of the gospel stands right beside the invitation of the gospel to name our pain, to name our brokenness, to name what is wrong with the world and with our hearts and then to invite us into real life that can only be experienced through Jesus. We cannot reduce the message of the gospel down to a black and white understanding of who Jesus is to check a box to make sure we go to heaven when we die. To reduce it down to an intellectual decision-making of what I believe. The invitation of Jesus is to know who he is, is to know him, is to experience the power and love of a God who is relational Isaiah 52, seven, this beautiful verse, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. We believe the gospel is good news and it's good news because it's beautiful and it's inviting us into something. How do we make a world that is languishing and filled with apathy come to know that there is something more beautiful out there? That you don't have to settle for a life of dopamine hits from Netflix and Instagram because there is a life that can be taken hold of. There is a treasure that is worth leaving everything for that is so much greater than what this world has on offer? How do we speak to our own hearts when they are filled with apathy, when we feel like we're languishing, when we feel numb to what's going on in our lives? We pursue the beauty of the gospel. John Tyson talking about what it looks like for us to bring the message of Jesus to the world. Uh, he's a pastor in New York. He says this. See, the traditional way people have thought about or that people have thought, is through a lens of goodness, then truth, then beauty. But in this cultural moment, we need to reverse that. See, right now, no one can figure out what's good, right? You know that. Nobody can agree on what is morally right or wrong. No one can seem to agree on what's true, right? Truth is relative. Live your truth, all these kind of things. But beauty has a way of moving past people's senses, so we have a responsibility to show people the beauty of the person of Jesus and the beauty of the gospel that we believe. See, in a world that's desperate for hope and beauty, we can hold up the person and work of Jesus as beautiful. Not just as an argument, 
not just as an intellectual fact, not just as a theological reality, but as the most beautiful truth and story in the world that Jesus has come, Jesus has lived, and Jesus has died and risen from the dead that we might be set free from our sin. We can hold up the beauty of Jesus like a lamp taken out of the basket that people might draw near to the light in the midst of the darkness. You feel alone and like no one understands. We have a savior who understands our pain and what it feels like to be alone and calls us into community. You feel angry at the world and its brokenness. Jesus is a king who will make all things right and bring about justice. You feel overwhelmed by the pain that you see in your life or the lives of the people that you love. Jesus is a good shepherd who will care for us and will one day wipe away every tear. Because the way we truly know someone, the way we truly come to love someone, the way you will come to love Jesus more deeply in your life is to see their beauty. The great question we must face in our lives is who is Jesus? It is his beauty, his grace, and his kindness that shows us who he is. And that beauty will prevent us from the danger of keeping Jesus at an intellectual arm's length. Just look at what he says to the crowd. Verse 33, Jesus said, I am with you for a short time, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. I'm not here to argue, Jesus says. I'm not here to play the religious game. I'm not here to just argue back and forth with you about who's this and what's this and who's right and who's wrong. I'm not playing that game. I'm here on a mission. I'm here to seek and to save the lost in Jesus's words. I'm here because I have come for those who know that they are desperately in need of a savior. If all you want to do is debate, if all you want to do is argue, then realize that the work that I am going to do will prove of no value to you. What I have come to do in the place that I am going to go, you will not be able to come. If all you want to do is debate this, that, and the other, you are missing out on why Jesus has come. But if you find Jesus, the question lands. That same question that really has been at the heart of all Jesus' interactions. With John the Baptist, with the woman at the well, with Nicodemus, with the crowds, with his disciples, even with his own family. It's captured so well in the Gospel of Matthew. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the son of, who do people say that the son of man is? And they replied, well, some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Here's all these opinions people have about Jesus. What do you think about Jesus? 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 And then Jesus says this, what about you? Who do you say that I am? My friends, that is the question that is the most important question in our lives. Who do you say that Jesus is? But the crowd in this moment doesn't want to engage that question. So they keep asking their own questions. The Jews looked around and said to each other, verse 35, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people have scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? Like, is he going somewhere else? Is he moving his ministry center? Uh, what, what did he mean when he said, you will look for me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. That's, that's pretty rude. That's pretty offensive. And how does Jesus respond to their pressing to their questions? 
He doesn't. In fact, the text just jumps ahead. Jesus doesn't engage their question. Jesus doesn't continue to debate. Jesus doesn't get into an argument any further with them. He just leaves space. Why? Because Jesus knows that ultimately it is only the Holy Spirit that can and will work in the hearts of those who hear the message of the gospel. No one can be argued into the kingdom of God. Jesus leaves the space and the silence because it only is when we slow down. It's only when someone stops, when someone puts down the distractions and asks the real questions of life that we can truly process the most important question of all. Who do you say that Jesus is? My friends, what I want you to know as we close today is that if you are seeking who Jesus really is, you will find him. If you are here, whether you've been a Christian for years and years and years and years, or whether you are just exploring or whether you are not sold on any of this and someone who loves you has invited you here or invited you to listen to this and you are just not convinced whatsoever, I believe this to the bottom of my heart that if you seek Jesus, that if you genuinely seek out who Jesus is, you will find him. In Jeremiah 29, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11 gets all the hype. I think Jeremiah 29, 13 is, a, is just the most unbelievable, beautiful verse. It's God speaking and he says this. He says, you will seek me and you will find me when you seek me with your whole heart. My friends, don't settle for knowing things about Jesus, for having conversations and debates about Jesus. The invitation is to know him to love him and to experience the love that he has for you. As the old hymn puts it, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face and the things of this earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that conversation that Jesus has with his disciples when he says, what about you? Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, in one of his better moments, he looked at him and he answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. When we know Jesus, we know him as who he truly is. And when we know Jesus as the Messiah, as the savior, as the shepherd, as the one who gave his life to save us and the one who rose from the dead to bring us a new life, that changes everything. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we come before you and we honor and glorify you because you are worthy to be honored and glorified. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are not concerned with gaining people's approval, gaining people's um, positive attitudes, but that you are most interested in asking us this question, who do we say that you are? And so Jesus, right now in this moment, I pray for anyone who's listening to this, God, to wrestle with that question that you, Holy Spirit, would place that question so heavy on their hearts. Who do you say that Jesus is? But that you would meet them in your grace and your kindness, that they might experience the reality that you are near. Then in the words of Paul in Acts 17, that you are not far off, that you desire that all should be saved, that you are longing and pursuing and chasing us down. 
hoping that we come to know, hoping that we come to believe, desiring, Lord Jesus, that all who hear the message of the gospel would receive you as who you truly are. You are not a lunatic. You are not a liar. You are not a good teacher. You are God. And so we worship you, King Jesus. I thank you for what you are doing in the lives of each one of us. And I pray that you would continue to do that work and bring it to completion just as you promised. God, bring us from a place of languishing into a place of real life that can only be found in you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.